Can you salvage something that is utterly awful and useless? Many television shows use that question and run with it. One is Restaurant Impossible on Food Network. <laughs> Restaurant Impossible takes failing, usually decrepit restaurants and attempts to breathe new life into them. As the name of the show implies, these are meant to be impossible situations. But along comes the bold optimist, Robert Irvine, the no-nonsense but less vulgar British chef with big arms who wears size schmedium shirts. <laughs> he inspects every aspect of the restaurants he's trying to salvage. He tries everything on their menu. He looks at the kitchen. Not surprising, it's not the beacon of cleanliness. He looks at their decor, usually pretty tacky. He takes a look at their finances, not always kept up that well. And he takes a look at the workplace relationships between the boss and their staff, and there's usually a lot of tension there. It's as an exhaustive of an inspection as you can get. And Irvine and his team want to transform, they want to salvage every aspect of the restaurant they're going into. And they want to do it in a short amount of time. So he talks to the owner of the restaurant, kind of lays down the terms. Irvine tells him, he's adamant, that if you want this to work, if you want this salvage to work, then you have to follow everything that I say. You have to trust me. He says that going back to their old ways, like keeping a dirty kitchen, keeping dinner sign specials in the window, or a menu congested with hundreds of items, those things aren't options anymore. And when I say Irvine's adamant, I mean that he's stern and that he's intimidating as much as a British man with large muscles can be. <laughs> so they do it. They go through the whole process. A complete overhaul, up to down. And after the dust settles from reconstruction, the menu's ready, the staff's re-energized. Usually each episode ends with the grand reopening. Customers are lining up out the door. They're eager to try this brand new restaurant. And the first night usually ends with a lot of hope. Customers love the changes. The owner's happy, and he's determined to continue to follow Irvine's ways. And the staff's hopeful for the future. But you know the most interesting part of the show, though, is not that first night. No, it's like the last 30-second clip of each episode where they catch up with each restaurant several months later to see what they're doing. Now, some continue to trust Irvine's word and follow what he told them. Seems like they're salvaged for good. But others, they revert back to their old ways. They forget Irvine. And all that work, tearing stuff down, building stuff back up, ends up being for nothing. Last week, we saw how things went from bad to worse after the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 to the first murder in Genesis 4. And the answer to the question, what happens to the effects of sin, is that sin continues to multiply. And as the story of Genesis progresses, 
That stays true. In fact, man becomes so sinful that we're told that every intention from his childhood becomes evil. But we also saw last week, what happens to God's promise? Namely, God's promise to crush the serpent, to restore his people to himself. At the close of chapter 4, God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And that promise through the line of Seth stays alive. So then heading into the section in front of us today, we see that the effects of sin remain, but God's promise also remains. that, That could be really hard to see, though, because the effects of sin lead to an earth that seems utterly awful and useless, like those restaurants. In fact, God says repeatedly that the earth is exactly that. It's utterly evil. So in judgment, God purges the evil. He washes it away with the flood. But he doesn't just do this in judgment, but also as a plan to salvage, to redeem what was irredeemable, like Restaurant Impossible. This seemed to work. God preserves a remnant that was eager to follow him, but eventually they revert back to their old ways. The weed of sin grew again in their hearts and it spread throughout the earth. And we're left to ask, was all that for nothing? What's going to happen with sin? What's going to happen with God's promise? We'll see the answers to those questions over the next seven chapters of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 5 to 11 today. A big chunk, and we're not going to read all of that. I know it's so disappointing. (laughs) But the main point of this overview of these seven chapters, you'll see it printed in your bulletin, is that we thrive when we trust God and obey his word. But a God who is not holy, merciful, and sovereign is not worth trusting and obeying. So what we are made for is to trust and obey God. But who's the God we trust and obey? Well, Genesis 5 to 11 revealed the God we trust and obey is holy, he's merciful, he's sovereign. So I invite you to open to chapter 5 of Genesis, and you'll find it on page 4 if you're looking in the Pew Bible. And we'll organize Genesis 5 to 11 in three major movements. Before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. If you're here with us at the beginning of Genesis, in the creation account, it's going to be similar to that. We'll briefly explain or skim what's going on in each one of these movements, and then we'll answer the same questions in light of each movement. Right? We're going to see who God reveals himself to be in each one of these times, that he's consistent, that he's not changing. And we'll see that in light of who God reveals himself to be, how we are called to live. Okay? First movement, before the flood. If you're looking at the ESV, you'll see two different headings from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 8. 
Now, the headings in the Bible are not inspired, nor are they a part of the original text, but they can be helpful. So the first heading is Adam's descendants to Noah. And the second one is increasing corruption on the earth. So remember, we have God's promise, right? God's promise of the seed, this offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That's back in chapter 3, verse 15. So after ending on a word of hope in chapter 4, chapter 5 begins with continuing that word of hope. And it identifies who that seed of the woman is. That seed of the woman who will live out the true image of God, who will crush Satan. But the effects of sin remain. And this section concludes with the rapid spreading and hardening of sin. So even though God is preserving the seed of the woman, the serpent gets stronger. Something else needs to happen. That's kind of what goes on before the flood from the satellite view. And we're going to take kind of a driving tour through it, not a walking tour, but a driving tour. We could do something like this through each subsection. You look at chapter 5, the whole thing, if you can notice what it is, it's probably your favorite thing that's in the Bible. Genealogies. Actually, I think Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys wrote the song, Fun, 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 originally about genealogies. Uh, she'll have fun, fun, fun until her daddy takes the genealogy away. Uh, wasn't quite as catchy. Uh, that's not true. I'm kidding. Uh, genealogies, though, are a reminder. They're a reminder that all Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for training, for reproof, for doctrine, that the man of God may be equipped with every good work. So even here, this genealogy, it's written down for a reason. One commentator explains, genealogies serve several purposes in Genesis. They establish continuity over stretches of time without narrative. In other words, they keep the story going. And they create links between major characters. And they show the props of major characters, right? So Noah is able to be this new representative because he's in the right line. It's kind of like how Jesus' genealogy works at the beginning of the Gospels. Jesus is qualified to be the Son of God, to be Christ, the Messiah, because he's in the line of David, right? It establishes their props. So you look at the genealogy, you take a closer look at it, you kind of have to do a double take. These guys were really old. Verse 27, this guy named Methuselah, he lived until he was 969. Unfortunately, Moses does not tell us what Methuselah's diet and exercise regimen was. <laughs> but even if it did, living this long is, is just foreign to us. I don't even imagine what it would be like to live to, I don't know, 110, let alone over 900. Now, scholars have tried to explain this in a lot of different ways. I think the best explanation is just to take these ages at face value. Perhaps there was something different about the conditions of the earth. It was more conducive to long life before the flood. But it's also interesting 
that during the same time, there are other people writing, other groups of people writing, and they're keeping records. And one group in the area of Mesopotamia keeps the records of their kings, and they claim that their kings are living thousands of years. Who knows whether or not this is true, but certainly 969 doesn't seem like that much of a stretch when we have other people living thousands of years. But I talk about this genealogy. Perhaps the most significant thing is that recurring phrase, and he died. Or you can live as long as you want. But that same phrase comes up again and again. Verse 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, 31, and he died. A curse of sin still felt in death. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 that death reigned, ruled after Adam. Medieval theologians, they used to keep a skull on their desks to remind themselves that everything here, including themselves, is fleeting. The reality of death affects us all. And that will cause us either to live only for what's here, which would be a mistake, friends, or to live for what is to come. And there's a hint of what to do even in this genealogy itself. Look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God. It doesn't say, and he died. It says, and he was not, for God took him. In the face of death, we must turn to the God of life. How do we get to the actual flood? When do things start to get bad? Well, that's the second subsection. You see that heading, increasing corruption on the earth, beginning in 6.1? With more people comes more sin. Specifically, the beginning of chapter 6 talks about two different groups of people. That the sons of God and the daughters of man. They're getting together, they're intermarrying, they're producing wicked offspring. It's kind of a strange part of the Bible here. Other parts of the Bible talks about fallen angels. This leads some to believe that this group here is fallen angels. But also the Bible says that angels don't intermarry. And the curse here is not given to angels, it's given to men. So just as a technical note, it's best to view this group, sons of God, as a group of tyrants in the line of Cain who were possessed by demons. But what's more important to see than that's the technical side of it is that these men were driven by lust. They weren't driven by God's will. You see their motivation. It's like how sin always springs up, how it sprung up in Eve and Cain. They saw something that was pleasing, and with only regard to themselves, they just took it. Sin is rampant. It's to the point in verse 5 that it says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Therefore, God pronounces that he will judge sin. But he will preserve one. Noah finds favor with God. And that's how this whole section before the flood ends. It's kind of the driving tour. We didn't stop to see every detail. 
Now we're going to ask four questions in light of this section, okay? Four questions. We'll ask the same ones for the other sections. Is God still holy before the flood? Is he still merciful before the flood? Is he still sovereign before the flood? And how are we called to live in light of all this? Is God still holy? Holiness captures a lot. God's justice, God's righteousness, his perfection, his purity, his glory. These are the ways he is different from us. His character, his nature. They're the reasons we owe him worship. We owe him devotion with our entire lives. God is separated from sin, committed to what's good. God is holy, and he's holy before the flood because he judges sin or evil. A lot of people don't like this truth. So they'll find ways to kind of skirt around it so they can get past it. So if they can get rid of God, if they can get rid of a creator, then they can get rid of one, of being accountable to somebody. Right? But if you do this, then that's really, it's a purposeless life. Friends, that's a false freedom. And ultimately, it's a lonely existence. God judging sin is not just a scare tactic. It's evidence that he is holy. The truth is that there is a God that he made us with meaning and with purpose. But we have failed to live and love as we were meant to do. And that's a problem. Because God is holy and we are not. When sinful people only have sinful people to compare themselves to, then it's tough to see what perfect holiness actually is like. But make no mistake, friends. God being creator also means that God is judge. He declares that even from the very beginning. So look at chapter 6, verse 3. God says that man's days will be 120 years. God delays his judgment. 120 years. He delays it, but he doesn't get rid of it. It's still going to come. Makes me think of um, kids do something wrong in public at a grocery store, and then they hear that phrase from their mom or their dad, oh, wait until we get home. That whole drive home, this kid is hoping, praying, oh, please, God, let my parents forget what happened. <laughs> Don't mistake God's delay for his forgetfulness. Maybe you don't see enough evidence for God's judgment. That it's just religious wishful thinking. It's just a power grab. But friends, God remains holy in judging sin. The next question, is God still merciful before the flood? See, just as holiness is a part of the Bible's basic picture of who God is, so is mercy a part of that basic picture. So even look at God's delay of judgment. That shouldn't just remind us of God's holiness. It should remind us of God's mercy. Those parts about God are not at odds with one another. Friends, he's given time for people to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin. 
And everyone he calls is going to come to him. And who knows how long it will take. See that even where there seems to be no goodness found, God calls those like Enoch, calls those like Noah. And praise God that in his mercy, he has included us. But friend, if you don't know God, if you haven't turned from your sin and turned toward God through Christ, who is the payment for our sin and rose from the dead proving that, then friend, see the mercy that he's brought you even here to hear that. That he's delayed his judgment for that. That he's made his mercy known to you now. Friends, God is merciful even before the flood. Is God still sovereign before the flood? Is he still ruling over everything? Has he lost control? It would seem like it. But he hasn't. Even the genealogy shows this. It shows God's hand is working through humanity to lead to their salvation. And the fact that God is sovereign, that he's in control, it means that he's able to uphold his justice and his mercy at the same time. That he is able to do this. So one pastor says, in light of this, on the one hand, we can't arrogantly ignore that God judges sin. Can't do that. But on the other hand, we cannot ignorantly despair that God is able to show mercy. We have to hold both. How are we called to live? Notice in chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found favor. He did not earn favor. Noah found favor. God shows grace to Noah and works righteousness in him. What will be clear even in the next section is that we respond to God's grace by trusting him and by obeying him. And the order here is crucial. So we have to chase after God's favor. And we're going to be like a hamster spinning on a wheel. We're just never going to get there. But God has shown his favor to us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So now we are saved. We've, shown, we've been shown grace. We can take off that hamster wheel and we can walk freely after our Lord. We are freed to obey. Accepted first and now we follow. And there's a reason why that phrase walking with God is so common in the Bible. It's, it's here for Enoch. It's, it's here for Noah. It shows our reconciliation to who made us. And now we walk along with him. That's what happens before the flood. What about during the flood? The flood is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Hollywood's taken several cracks at it. I don't think it's gotten a hit yet. Um, we have a plethora of toys that include an ark with bunches of two animals. It's very cute. Uh, there's even a life-size replica of the ark, and of all places, Kentucky. <laughs> the familiarity and the fascination we have with the flood, it can cause us to lose sight of just how monumental this must have been. And imagine preparing for this for 120 years. 
I mean, I can't even imagine. Ten years down the line, this seems a long way away. It's not here yet. Ten more years, then ten more years. And he's got to gather all this wood. He's got to chop down trees. He's got to build all this. He's got to gather all the animals. Just the anticipation alone. And then imagine seeing the waters rise. And this ark being carried on. This is monumental. Don't lose sight of that. Being fascinated with it can cause us to get lost in the details that aren't the main point of this story. Similar to the creation account. All those random little questions we may have. So keep the main point in front of you. So let's take a driving tour like we did before the flood. Got your Bibles open? You'll need to follow along or else you may be lost. So from start to finish, the flood is how God will simultaneously judge sin and carry forward his plan of salvation for his people. The whole thing's kind of like a recreation, right? There's parallels between how God creates the world and, and how Adam and Noah are the same kind of representatives. So in verses 9 to 12, chapter 6, we begin to see how this story flows nicely. There's reoccurring themes throughout. Verses 9 to 12, actually. We see Noah and the world at his time right before the flood. It's corrupt. It's filled with violence. Verses 13 to 22, God speaks of how he will provide for Noah during the flood. He gives details of the ark. He provides a covenant with Noah. It's a relationship of faithfulness with loyalty and love. He does this to preserve Noah. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, Noah and his family get in the ark. Verses 6 to 16 in chapter 7, the flood begins. We see the details of different animals on the earth. We see the flood at its peak, verses 17 to 24 of chapter 7. And that turning point is at the beginning of chapter 8, where God remembered Noah. And then everything happens again, but kind of in reverse order. Whereas the flood was at its peak, now the flood wanes. Beginning of chapter 8 through verse 5. As the flood began and he gave details about the animals, so does it end. And we see Noah with animals, namely with birds. In verses 6 to 14. Just as everyone got in the ark, now everyone gets off the ark. In verses 15 to 19. Just as God provided for Noah before the flood, so does he provide for the earth after the flood. And he reaffirms his covenant with him. That goes through chapter 9, verse 17. And the warrior hangs up his bow, pointed away from his creation. And the rainbow. Now there are many helpful resources that if you want to take a slower walk through the flood story, Things like seeing the exact shape of the ark, what they ate, how they took care of the waste from the animals. You can look into that. But like uh, the important thing to remember is that just this creation, so here with the flood, the rest of the Bible treats this as if it actually happened. It treats this as it actually happened. And there's other evidence, too, like the genealogies, right? Other lists from the surrounding areas. There's, in the surrounding areas, there are accounts of this cataclysmic-like flood 
But the difference between this account and the other ones are real telling because they clarify who our God is. And that leads us, quite naturally, into the same four questions. Is God still holy during the flood? Yes. God is steadfast in his stance against sin. The flood shows us that his holy judgment isn't just random. It's not arbitrary. His judgment, friends, is against specific sins. You flip back to chapter 6, verse 13. It says the earth is filled with violence. His judgment isn't arbitrary. It's against people like those in chapter 8, verse 21. Those whose every intention of the heart is evil from their youth. That's that's a doctrine of total depravity. That's in the Old Testament. God's judgment is righteous. It's not flippant. It's not wavering. God doesn't wake up one day. First of all, God doesn't sleep, so that analogy breaks down there. God doesn't wake up and say, oh, I got on the wrong side of the bed today. I think I'm going to be holy and judge sin. No. God is steadfast in his holiness. But see, just as God announced the flood, his coming judgment, what did we read earlier? Matthew 24. Jesus announces his return. When he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So friends, we can't ignore this aspect about God. That God is holy and he judges sin. So the flood's not just a cool story. What the flood should show us is that we shouldn't dare to enter into the presence of this kind of God being casual about our sin. We cannot enter the presence of this kind of God being casual about our sin. So are you prepared? If the flood shows us anything, it should force us to ask that question, are you prepared? Are you secure? Knowing that God's justice for you, for those who believe, has been satisfied through Christ in your place. That's what God's holiness is during the flood. Is God still merciful during the flood? Again, the answer is a resounding yes. In the midst of his holy and settled wrath, God remembers mercy. And it was not that God brings up the flood and says, oh yeah, Noah's out there. I remember him. I remember all the things I said to Noah. No, this word remember, it's not like our word remember. It's to act upon a previous agreement. To act upon a covenantal love. So know this, friends. Know this. That if the waters of your life are raging around you, God remembers mercy. And he remembers you, those in Christ. He remembers. He is not forgotten. He will bring you safely home. We have no hope to tread through the waters of God's judgment without his mercy. 
In fact, the ark is much like Christ, our Redeemer. Mark Dever says this, Christ is the vessel of mercy that we, once inside, can safely ride through the floods of God's judgment. Our salvation is wholly due to God's mercy in Christ. It's on display here during the flood. Is God still sovereign during the flood? Yes. We see this and God brings about what he promises. He does what he promises to do. He promises judgment through the flood. He brings about judgment through the flood. He promises Noah to protect and preserve his family, and he protects Noah and preserves his family. He brings about what he promises. God's able to uphold his justice and his mercy. He's able to do this. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. You see a great detail of that. God tells Noah to get in the ark. Keep in mind, this has been 120 years. It's been 120 years. God says, get in the ark, and then it doesn't rain for seven days. Could you imagine? Everybody around thought Noah was crazy already. Now it's the moment of truth. He finally gets in the ark, and as one day is gone, it hasn't rained yet. Another day is gone. It hasn't rained yet. You thought Noah was crazy before? Now he's living in this giant ship. Well, what happens after the seven days? God shuts Noah in. He doesn't leave it up to Noah to accomplish his salvation. God does it. That's the same kind of authority of Christ who said in John chapter 10 that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have the authority to raise it up again. Christ accomplishes our salvation. We rely on him alone for this. And friends, the fact that God is sovereign means that he is reliable. He is able to do this, and he has done this. How are we called to live? Like the hymn says, trust and obey. Trust God and obey his word. You think of Noah. It's not that Noah was intrinsically any better than the people around him. That's going to become very clear soon. Is that he believed the promises of God and God granted him a righteousness not his own. That's what Hebrews 11 says. We read earlier. So friends, God has spoken in his word. He's spoken through his son. You have to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Well, you got to notice something else. Noah believed and trusted God and his promises, even among an awful people. Jesus says the last days are going to be like the days of Noah. People have no regard for who God is. I don't know about you, you can see that those are the kind of days in which we live. It's all the more important then, friends, that we are to live lives that are distinct from the world. Live lives of obedience to God. So many, many Christians, well-intentioned Christians, would think that we can gain the world's ear if we just show them how similar we are to them. 
And it's not that we are distinct from the world in a weird way or a self-righteous way. We're saved by grace. That excludes boasting. But friends, we are distinct from the world. Because God has shown us this grace, we strive to obey. It's what we're called to do. And we're called to do that together. Following God, obeying God, is not a solo project. It's a community project. It's brought us here in local churches for a reason. That's why the local church is so important. It's why belonging to a local church is so important. We need help. And other people need our help. Yes, every person with the Holy Spirit is given a gift, is put in churches for a reason. To help us obey and follow our Lord. Real quick, after the flood, what happens next? We got to end this somewhere. Does the fresh start with Noah usher in an age when God's rule is evident and sin is eradicated? Unfortunately, no. If that were the case, the Bible would probably end at this point. It'd be a lot shorter than what it is. We see that the sin nature that every person inherits also affected those who are on the ark. It's a reminder, friends, that though we are distinct from the world, we cannot seclude ourselves from the world. What does that mean? It means that this is against our mission, and it means that it won't work if we completely seclude ourselves from the world. There's a reason that the monastic movement failed. That all the monks and nuns, when they went into their monasteries, they soon realized that the sin within them followed them there. So it is with us, for Christians who are in Christ, our greatest enemy is often the desire of sin that still clings in us. Greatest enemy often lies within ourselves. So after the flood, it's even clear that God must give us new hearts. We must depend on him, not ourselves, for salvation. So we left off at the beginning of chapter 9, in a time of peace. God reaffirms his covenant with Noah and the rest of creation. Here's God's safeguarding. He's preserving what he made over. He's never going to destroy the earth by flood again. He's going to protect innocent life. And notice verse 9, 11, 15 of chapter 9. God calls it my covenant. He's going to fulfill this in spite of human failure. And it doesn't take long for that failure to show itself. Look at verse 20 in chapter 9. Like Adam before him, Noah tends to the ground. He grows a vineyard, and he drinks wine from that vineyard. And he gets drunk to the point where he removes his clothes. And he gives an occasion for his son to further escalate that sin. So you see, it's just as Cain and his descendants followed in his footsteps, so does Noah's son, Ham, and his descendants follow in his footsteps. So for Ham's descendants stem the nations that we see to be enemies of Israel. So after the flood, sin is still present. 
but humanity continues. People spread into different lands and different tribes. That's what chapter 10 shows. But chapter 10 also shows that they are all under one creator. God's aware of all these nations, and he has concern for all these nations. Even though they're united under one creator, they unite in chapter 11 against their creator. This is the account of the Tower of Babel, a collective, titanic rebellion against God. And you see their motivation, verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Worshiping themselves, not God. The tower was idolatry. Purported a false view that man could somehow become on the same level as God. And to prevent them from further spiraling into their sin, God scatters them. They're at kind of the end of the episode where the restaurants, they revert back to their old ways. It just seems like this was for nothing. What happens to sin? It remains. It multiplies. What happens to God's promise? It remains. The end of chapter 11. Through the descendants of Noah's son, Shem, will come Abram whose nation will give birth to one who will provide salvation for all those nations of chapter 10 who cursed God. That's the driving tour. Same four questions. We'll close with these real fast. Is God still holy after the flood? Yes. The story of Genesis so far reveals how fast rebellion multiplies from Adam to Cain to Noah to Noah's sons to Babel. Humanity knows right from wrong, but they choose wrong. They choose to go against the boundaries God set up. And people assert for themselves what is right to the point of murdering their own brother, to the point where the text says that every intention of their heart is evil, to the point where they set up this giant tower in rebellion against God. God has to put an end to this. His glory, he cannot belong to anyone else. He must guard what is good. He does that in the flood. He does that at Babel. And he does that, friends, also at the cross. The cross is the ultimate display of God's holiness. If you want to know the seriousness in which God takes sin, then behold the bleeding Savior who bore the punishment for our sin. Is God still merciful after the flood? Yes. Not only does God not allow humanity to spiral further into rebellion, but he also keeps his promise going. He's that line of the seed of the woman. It's still the beginning. We're in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. You see how patient God has been? It's going to take a long time. But through Abram, God will raise up a light to the Gentiles. Among those who Jesus redeems are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So even here at the beginning, we see a glimpse of what will happen at the very end. Of how 
Acts 2 and Pentecost will begin to reverse what happened at Babel. God brings people into one people of God. God's still merciful after the flood. Is God still sovereign after the flood? Yes. The men of Babel thought that they could reach God, and Moses describes God as having to come down to see them. We're specks of dust compared to the Creator God. But what's more is that God's merciful plan to continue that line of the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher, the Messiah, the fact that he keeps going reminds us that he's still in control. He knows what he's doing in judgment. He knows what he's doing in mercy. He's going to accomplish this plan to save his people. He will uphold his justice. He will uphold his mercy. And he will bring about his glory. So at the end, we are all saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How are we called to live? This whole big scene, before, during, and after. You see, from the beginning, God's holy. He's merciful. He's sovereign. And he still is this. We may be tempted to treat this passage kind of like an information download. Think of uh, Neo from The Matrix. If you haven't seen The Matrix, you don't need to know much. Uh, he's sitting in a chair, and they hook him up to this desktop computer from 1998, and uh, they upload all these karate moves to his brain. And he wakes up, and Keanu Reeves plays Neo. And only as Keanu Reeves can say it, just without any sort of emotion, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> Don't walk away from all this as cold, indifferent, emotionless. God's holiness, his mercy, his sovereignty should stir in us reverence and awe. Behold your God, friends. Then see how Christ perfectly displays the Father's holiness, displays the Father's mercy, displays the Father's sovereignty. And our continued failure, seen in Adam, see it in Cain, we see it in Noah, see it in Babel. See Christ, who is the perfect representative. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for the salvation from your sin, then he has given you grace in the Holy Spirit to trust and obey God's word. So far, we've seen Adam fail in a garden. We've seen Noah fail in a garden. Praise the Lord that Christ did not fail in that garden of Gethsemane. That for the joy set before him, Christ chose the Father's way. He obeyed where we didn't for our sin. Now we can live to trust and obey our Lord. Let's pray, friends. God, there's so much here, but Lord, let us walk away revering your name, being in awe of who you are, that you are so high and lifted up above us, 
that you are so removed from sin and we are so steeped in it. And yet, God, you still show us mercy to the praise of your glory. Mercy that through the floods of your judgment of our sin, we can be safe in Christ. Mercy that you have sent your spirit to make us alive so that we can trust and obey you, not ourselves. God, help us to see this even from the beginning in Genesis. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.